I watched a video this week of a family that lives in Siberia. That's very far away, very cold place, the other side of the world. And they lived in the coldest city in the world, which I don't know how they measure that, I guess with <laughs> degrees and Fahrenheit. But it was like the coldest city on average in the world. And it's not just it's cold for a long period of time, but it has like the most acute cold spurts when it gets like minus 65 degrees Fahrenheit, right? So uh, it was a documentary basically about how to raise a family there because there's this one particular family. It's the largest family in that area. There, there were 22 kids in this one house in minus 65 degrees. And the opening shot is of this one dude that just like steps outside this house. It's the dad. He goes over to like this covered patio area. He grabs a block of ice and he starts chipping it away from it. And the, the person who's talking over it says like, the father is now getting all the drinking water the family needs for the day. They're going to take that block of ice and it's the only clean water because there's Pipes don't work out there. It's too cold. Everything will freeze. So the way they get their water is by taking these blocks of ice, the clean water that they have outside that they just kind of keep outside. They bring it in and they heat it up with like fire. And then that's how they, they get their drinking water for the day. And it's weird because that sounds very primitive and it sounds like, you know, there's nothing that they, they didn't have any modern luxuries. Then you go into the kids' rooms and there's like Paw Patrol stuff everywhere and they're wearing all the same kind of pajamas and colorful clothes that maybe you did when you were growing up. And it was just amazing to me, like how harsh the outside can be and how there's just like a crazy amount of hostility outside that those kids would never survive. They wouldn't survive for 30 minutes outside, let alone to live there. But they've got this house, they've got this father, they've got this protection. And all of a sudden inside that really hostile environment, it's like a bubble of normal. It all looked normal. The food looked normal. The cast iron pan that the mom was cooking on looked normal. The pancakes she was making, it all looked weirdly normal to me for how abnormal of a situation they were in. Because guess what? Those parents were taking care of them. Well, last time we talked about how um, we pray to our Father in heaven and we ask for certain things. And before we ask for what we need, we should get our minds thinking about what God wants us to pray for. And the first thing God wants us to pray for is he wants us to pray about him and his plan and his will and all those things. But then in this text, he's going to shift to talking about praying for what we need. Because the truth is, a lot like that family out in Siberia, we have a lot of needs that probably we take for granted. I mean, I, I don't think that six-year-old girl who, you know, got out of her Door the Explorer, whatever, that's probably too old. She probably wasn't wearing Door the Explorer, but whatever, you know, child, she's wearing her cocoa melon pajamas in her painted white wood bunk bed that looks exactly like the one you grew up in. It's like she takes for granted a little bit. No, and I don't want to call her ungrateful, right? But I just think if she saw what was happening outside and she realized all the protection that she had, she was, I don't know, maybe taking those things for granted, unless she's a really thankful person. But my, my, I see that and I think that's probably how we live, right? We have all these things that are taken care of for us that God has provided that if God did not provide for us, we would not have. You would not have the home without God. You would not have your family without God. You would not have your life or your talents or even the breath you breathe. You wouldn't have any of it without God, but we live inside this bubble that God has created for us to live in in a very comfortable way. Now, that's not a bad thing that we live in a comfortable situation, but we should step back and see the reality that we depend on God for everything. And we should be people who pray like we depend on God for everything. And that's what Jesus is going to say. So turn open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. I kind of gave you the conclusion before we even started, but that's where all these requests are going to get to. The first three requests, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Those requests are all about God, right? And that is how we should pray. We should think beyond our situation. We should think, what does God want in this world? That's the kind of thing we should start to think about, especially before we pray. And then in verse 11, he's going to say, now, thinking about your daily life, what do you really need? You should, you should start to pray to God about the things that you need. It's not wrong to do. And he, we talked about it last week. I hope I didn't say that it's, it's selfish to pray for the things that we need. It's not selfish to pray for the things we need. We see Jesus model it right here in verse 11. Check it out. Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. He says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us 
our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay? We got three phrases right there. Three requests. The first is about bread. Give us this day or today our daily bread. Request number two is forgive us our debts, which debt, I hope you know, is just a, it's a synonym for the word sin, right? It's just a figurative way to say we owe God something and we don't always give to God the obedience that he's owed. And when we fall short, it's like we owe God a debt. So he says, forgive us for where we've sinned. And then the third thing is lead us not into temptation. So the three requests, give, forgive, and lead us not, right? Don't lead us and deliver us from evil. Those are kind of one and the same request. He's saying, give us what we need, forgive us when we sin, and help us not sin in the first place. That would be even better. Those are the three things that Jesus says you really need. Now, again, thinking about your life, thinking about your prayer life, are those the kind of things that you pray for? Is that what kind of takes up the vacuum of space of your prayer. Because we said, first of all, we want to pray for God, about God, his glory, his honor. That should be the first thing. But then what are the things Jesus thinks you need to pray for? Well, these three things are super important and they're things that we need to pray for. And my guess is if you don't pray to God for your daily bread, if you don't pray to God to forgive you, and if you don't pray to God that you would not be led into temptation, then I can guess a couple things about you, okay, from the scriptures. Either you're a person who is entitled, which that means a person who thinks they're owed stuff. Like, I don't need to pray to God for forgiveness and not to be led in temptation. And I don't need to pray for my food because I already have it and he already gave it. So I just don't even need to ask for it. Well, maybe you're, you're an entitled person. Entitled people wouldn't pray for these things. Okay, that's one type of person. But there's another kind of person that's the opposite of entitled who would also not pray for these things. Be people who think that they are self-sufficient. That's the other end of the spectrum. If you think you don't need to pray for your daily bread because you worked for it and you got it, so you don't need to ask for it. Oh, and not just that, but I don't need to pray that I'd be forgiven because like, I don't really, I mean, I, don't, I haven't really wronged God, right? I don't, I don't think I did anything all that wrong. Or the third one, I don't need to pray that I won't be led into temptation because I got this figured out. I don't need God's help with this. Two types of people don't pray this way. Entitled people and self-sufficient people. And it's interesting, those are very different. One says, I'm owed all this stuff, so I don't need to ask for it. I'll get it anyway. And the other type of person says, I don't need to ask for this stuff because I'm going to get it myself. Both of those are wrong. What kind of person should we be? A person who's dependent on God, who does ask and does trust God. That's the, that's the main idea. We got to repent of any kind of self-sufficient attitude. If you think that you're not going to pray for daily bread because you've already got it, Right? Or you think, yeah, I have all the food I need. Why would I ever ask God for food or what I need? I don't need to pray for that because I already have it. Well, that might be an entitled mindset or it might be a self-sufficient mindset. If you think you don't need to pray for forgiveness, that might be an entitled mindset, might be a self-sufficient mindset. If you don't pray for protection against temptation, that might be an entitled mindset. It might be a self-sufficient mindset. I don't know. We all, you know, we all do this differently. We all fail in this in different ways. But I want to put this before your eyes today. These are Jesus' words, not mine. These words are, are very important. I want to show them to you. I want you to think, let's start praying this kind of stuff, right? Three things, three requests. Start with the first one. Uh, first says, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, this is an extremely hard phrase to translate because there's a couple words here that are extremely rare and that there's not like a good one-for-one -one translation. When it says, give us today our daily bread. You notice today and daily, like those are the same kind of idea. There's two words that are there. One of them is talking about uh, every day or, or today, but the other word, the, the phrase daily bread is really hard to translate. Some people call it like the bread that you really need because there's not really another place in the Bible we can look at and say, where else is that word used? Maybe I can figure it out from there. It's not really done in any other place other than the Lord's prayer. So this concept of daily bread I want you to just kind of try to define what does that mean to pray for daily bread? Because some of you are gluten-free. Okay, this is the problem. Okay. You want to pray against daily bread, right? Like you don't want, you're going to pray that there's no gluten in that, right? Uh, <laughs> that's the opposite of praying for your bread. So what does this mean? Uh, I hope you know this. This is kind of a basic Bible thing. We're talking about bread. We're not always talking about bread, Okay. 
Uh, we even use that. Like, you make that bread today. Like, go out there and get that bread. Oh, what does that mean? It means, well, that, <laughs> that meant money, but it means stuff. It means sustenance, right? It's just a, it's a word to describe bread. That, I mean, bread, it's, it's real. It's good. You need bread, right? Hey, gluten-free people. Never mind. I'm sorry. But bread's pretty good, not to wave it in your face or anything, but uh, God says you need it. God says you need more than just bread, but bread is kind of that Bible word to talk about. It's your life source, okay? So what do you need, even if you're gluten-free, right? You need sustenance from God. You need life from God. You need breath from God. You need water. You need shelter. You need food of some sort or another with or without gluten. You need something from God because if you don't have that something, you will die, correct? If you don't have it. But here, let me state the obvious. It's kind of weird to pray for bread when most of us should put less bread in our mouth hole, right? Like we should put less in, like a face hole, sorry. Uh, like we should put less. So why pray for it if we need less? Like we already have so much. Why do we pray for it? Okay. This, this prayer makes sense when you're like traveling and you don't know if you're going to get food and it's like you, you took a flight and then you got off the flight and you didn't eat food at the airport and then you're trying to get back to the hotel and you don't know if there's food around. You start praying, God, give us today our daily bread because you feel this need, okay? I just want to show you throughout the Bible that you have that need all the time. You just don't sense it. Like your, your bread supply or your food supply could get taken away or not just your food supply, and not just your money, and not just your stuff, but even your body's ability to ingest that food and take energy, it could be taken away right now. You, some of you may have had your last meal, not to freak you out, but that is possible. Some of you may have had, and I hope this doesn't happen to any of you, but it is possible that you had your last meal already. Okay? Why do I say that? Because God sustains our life all the time. And if we're people who never ask God to sustain our life because we just like assume that he will, what kind of people are we, right? We're entitled people. It's wrong to have that attitude. We should be asking God to protect us and give us what we need. So point number one is this, about daily bread, ask God to give you what he thinks you need. Ask God to give you what he thinks you need. This is not the same as saying, God, I, I'm going to pray every day for all the particular delicacies of food that sound interesting to me, and then I'm going to trust that you're going to give those to me. That's not what he says. He does not say, give us this day our sidecar donuts. He does not say, give us this day our, uh, I don't know, what else is really, um, no, I mean Chick-fil-A, you know, that could be included, I don't know. That feels kind of like daily bread to me. But like, what, a special treat, right? What's a special treat to you? You know, you don't need that. Yeah, you don't need Chick-fil-A either, uh, especially not today, because uh, you'd be fasting today. That's two sermons from now, but we'll get to that later. Uh, but what do you need? That's a, have you ever thought about that? What do you need? That's a very hard question to answer, okay? Because like, what you think you need is probably more than what you actually need. If it's, I, I, I need a car when I turn 16. It's like, but you don't, you don't like need a car though, right? Well, I don't need one, but I really want one. But my parents need a car to get to work. It's like, oh, well, they don't really need one. There's probably another way. Well, I guess they don't need it. See how you start using that word need and start whittling down to what you really need. It's less than what you would ask for, right? We can say, hey, um, we have certain wants, and we should be better at probably saying, I, I want this thing. I would like this thing. I wish to have this thing. As opposed to saying all the time, like we're so guilty of, I need, need, need all this stuff. When our Father in Heaven would look at that and, and laugh. And people who lived a long time ago, who went with a lot less, would just laugh at the stuff we say that we need. So this idea of daily bread, I think it's a good picture because daily bread is not, it's not ostentatious. It's not impressive. It doesn't, you know, it's not fancy. It's just simple. And that's what Jesus tells us. Pray for God to sustain your simple needs. I told you I tried to prove this from the Bible. Here's a couple of passages for you to write down. First one is Psalm 24, 1. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I think it, if we understood this one verse, we'd get a lot more understanding about ourselves. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So the world belongs to God. Every drop of water is God's water. 
Every person who walks around is God's person. God owns the whole world. That's the idea. God owns everything. Do you believe that God owns everything? Okay. If you believe that God owns everything, like the scriptures say, then every bit of food that you've ever eaten has been from God's hand. All of it. It's humbling, isn't it? To think you have, it's not a single time you've had a calorie that God didn't give you. It's all been from God. James 1, 17 says the same thing. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So every good gift, who's it, where's it come from? It comes from God. Every meal, every taco, every In-N-Out burger, right? Uh, every cheese fry In-N-Out burger, right? Every Chick-fil-A sandwich, every Chipotle burrito or bowl, if you're like that. Um, all of it. Like, isn't it, we have this weird view that like, there's always going to be food wherever we go. Do you feel that way? I don't wake up in the morning and worry about, I don't even know where I'm going to get lunch today. Like I, personally, right now, I have no idea. But you know what? I just kind of naturally assume that I'll put some calories in my mouth, and I don't know where they'll come from. I just assume it's going to happen. Isn't that an odd thing? And most of the world didn't live like that, uh, and now most of us do. And that's the weird dissonance that we have with this praying for a daily bread. Uh, but... I'm going to show you some other passages. Romans 2.4 talks about God's kindness to us. And if we have a lot, that means God has been kind to us. I don't want to guilt trip you and saying, oh, feel bad because God's given you a lot. I'm not telling you to feel bad. Here's what I am saying. Romans 2.4 says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The fact that you have more than other people, that's meant to lead you to repentance. Some of you have food every day, and you know that you should repent of your sin, and you're eating God's food, right? And you're sucking on God's air, right? And you're drinking God's water. And it's like, like if you really considered what you're doing, it's like, this is God's world, and we are living in it, and God's graciously allowing you all this stuff. And if you're one of those people that knows you need to repent of certain things and certain sins, you're like, nope, I'm not going to, but I'm going to eat your food, right? It's like, think about how that works with God. It's, that's, it's messed up. Jesus tells a story of a rich man in the gospel of Luke. It's a parable. It's a story. So this likely did not happen, but it's, I mean, this kind of thing happens all the time. Luke 12, starting verse 16, I'll read it for you. Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all my crops. So big harvest, lots of stuff. He says, where should I put it all? He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You're good. You've, you've figured it out. You've taken care of yourself, right? That's how most of us deal with food. That's how most of us deal with finances. We're good. We got what we need, right? And if we don't, our parents do, and we're good, we're good, we're good, right? Okay. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? They're not going to be yours. You got all that stuff? Congratulations. That, that guy was going to die that night. And God says, it's so foolish to think you can amass all this stuff and then think, I'm good. I don't, I, I got what I need. It's like, you may think you have what you need, but you can't have it unless God wants you to have it. Even that should be humbling for us. And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And this guy's a bad example, right? Because he doesn't think about God. He doesn't think about giving. He doesn't think about any of that. But I show that story to you just to say, hey, look, even if you're one of those people that has a lot and you think it'd be weird for me to ask God for food today because like I got a pantry full of food, right? Why am I asking God for something that's there? you should just ask God to sustain your life because unless he sustains your life, you're not even going to eat that food, right? That big Costco haul that you pulled in, you know, with three carts that cost $600, right? You, don't, you can't even eat that unless God lets you eat that. So there's a humility that all of us should have with God and our food. <laughs> That's kind of what this is talking about here. Um, and by the way, this is all good for us to think about because if you're a person who's anxious, about where you're going to get your next meal. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6? He says, I tell you, this is verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life or what you'll eat or drink, 
nor about your body or what you'll put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Right? The idea is God knows what you need. So this, this sermon is not supposed to stress you out and say, oh, I might not have food. The sermon is supposed to say, hey, God's the one who gives you the food. And you can trust God to continue to do it. But can you start asking God to sustain your life? Right? Many of us don't ask God to give us what he thinks we need. And obviously the warning here is God is not telling you to pray for everything you want. So that is just should be clear with this. Ask God to give you what he thinks you need. The reason I said he thinks as opposed to what you need is because a lot of us have the wrong view of what we need. We think we need more than we actually need. So God is not telling you, hey, pray for everything you want. Um, if you were to pray for everything you want, you realize you'd pray for a lot of things that are bad, and then you'd be kind of, not disappointed, but it'd be bad for you if God answered that prayer. For, for example, there, there's a passage in James chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. It says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So these people are fighting in this church Right? Maybe there's murder. Maybe that's just a hyperbolic statement to say, this is why you guys are getting in conflicts, because you want all this stuff and you have unmet desires. You do not have because you do not ask. So some of you aren't even praying about things. And verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he says there, you know, if you're just praying for whatever you want, here's the warning, right? Be careful before praying for whatever you want, because if you're just going to spend it on your passions, right, don't ask God for a Lamborghini. Don't ask God for a $10 million house. Please don't ask God for that. Um, God might give you that, but don't ask for that. I really don't think you should ask for that. Um, is that a, a wise thing to do? Did you want to ask God to make you the most popular person on TikTok? Right? Please don't pray for that. Please don't pray for that. That would be the worst thing that would ever happen to you. Okay? Don't pray for that. Uh, and if God gave it to you, it'd be like, you asked for it, so there you go. It would be a punishment, not a blessing. Right? Um, you would say, I don't believe you. Well, believe me please. Um, different sermon. But like, here's the point. If you ask God so that you'll just spend that stuff on your passions, your desires that some of them are good, some of them are bad. It's like, you realize God doesn't want to answer requests like that. So don't ask God to spoil you as a child. Ask for your daily bread. That's what he's saying. It's, it's a helpful limiter, right? You should be careful. Like think, I'm praying about something. Mm, is this something I should really be asking for? Maybe this is not something I should be asking for. Um, The daily bread thing in the Bible, if I said, was there ever a group of people, Bible trivia, was there ever a group of people that did not have food and they were in the wilderness and they didn't have food or water and God did some miracle to give them food and how often did he give them food? You would say, oh, that's uh, the Israelites in the wilderness with manna, right? Manna from heaven. Do you remember how the manna from heaven worked? Were they allowed to gather as much as they could? No, they were not told to gather as much as they could. They weren't tasked with saying, okay, now put it in your jars and put it, it, it the, here's, I'll just read it for you. This is Exodus 16. The Lord commanded them to gather at each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. So grab, grab food every morning. Basically what happened was God had this weird like bread, but it said it was like coriander seed and honey. So... It was like, it was bread, but it was like sweet bread. And it was on their, in front of their tents every morning. Basically, it rained down on the ground this weird bread stuff that you could collect. And they, they say it was kind of flaky uh, in the text. And they collected it and they ate it. And that's what they ate when they were in the wilderness because there's no food sources in the wilderness, right? Go try to live in, in Joshua Tree for five years with, without going to a, a grocery store, right? You're just gonna die at some point. But if God like, I don't know, dumped all this food on the ground for you that you could just scoop up and eat, then I guess you could survive, right? And that's what God did. And it says, and the people of Israel did so. And they gathered some more and some less. But when they each measured it out to an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. So this is weird. It's like God's like evening the playing field on all the stuff they gathered, right? Some of them were grabbing, you know, six or seven Del Taco tacos, right? Some of them were grabbing one, and they put them on the scale, and guess what? It all weighed the same. That was weird, right? Um, then Moses said to them, 
let none of you leave anything over until the morning. So Moses' command to them was, okay, have the food and then throw it away when you're done or eat it and just be done with it, right? But don't try to store it up for more than one day, okay? So no leftovers. God's against leftovers. I'm just, don't say, I'm just kidding. Um, God's not against leftovers. It's just in this particular situation. Uh, let's be good Bible study people, right? God's not against, you see, see how bad, it's so easy to be a false teacher, right? So easy. You can just be like, look, you said don't gather anything. Oh, that's why you, whatever, sorry. Uh, okay, but some did not listen to Moses. So there are some of the Israelites that said, yeah, you know what? I, I kind of like that bread. I want, I want that bread. I'm going to get that bread. Krispy Kreme donuts, right? Coriander seed and honey, a little bit of sweet, a little bit of bread, a little, you know. I liked what I ate this morning. We're going to gather more. Let's put it like, let's store it somewhere, maybe in a jar or, or a, a jar. I don't know what they had, right? They didn't have Tupperware or boxes. So I don't know where they put it, but they put it probably in a jar. Some did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Why? Because they didn't do what he said. They, they, they tried to store it all up. And the lesson there, which is interesting, is God was going to feed them day by day. God wanted those people to get food every single morning from them because he did not want them in the wilderness to think they didn't depend on God. And that all serves as an object lesson for them when they went into the land, the next generation, when they went in Deuteronomy, and it says, hey, when you go into the land and you earn all the wealth and you take all the stuff, don't think that it was you that did it. Remember how I fed you day by day in the wilderness? That's how I'm going to feed you in the land. You're just going to use natural processes now. Now you're going to use the water that comes from the, under the ground, and now you're going to farm, and you're going to do all that, but I'm still going to feed you day by day. And in Deuteronomy 8, it says, don't think that you are the one that has the power to acquire all this wealth. Remember that I am the one who gives you power to acquire any wealth. The reason you live in a rich society is because God wanted that and God allowed that, and that's why you live here. Um, and that's good, and you should praise God for that. But when you ask, ask dependently, and realize we live day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, relying on God. How this is put in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's an interesting perspective. I don't want to be excessively gluttonous with all the food I have or all the stuff I have. I don't want that. And I also don't want to have nothing all the time where I'm tempted to steal. So I want just what's needful for me. I, I want just what I need. I want to pray to ask God to give me what he thinks I need. I challenge you to pray for that, even if it feels weird. Even if it feels odd to pray for your daily bread. You don't even have to say, pray for my daily bread. But you could pray something like, God, please give me what you think I need today. I don't want to take a bite of food that you don't want me to take today. I don't, I don't want to be without if you want me to be with. I don't want, like, I want what you want me to have today, so please sustain my life because I know I depend on you for everything. That's what it means to pray for your daily bread. Now, there's something more important than daily bread that Jesus says next. Uh, request number two says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but debt is just a figurative way of talking about sin. Right? And you kind of know that. You probably figure that out. But to ask God to forgive us of our sins. But I like how it's put as a debt. That's a helpful analogy for us. And Jesus says it that way. And I just think it's helpful for us to think about it. Forgive us our debts. What does that mean? Uh, question for you. This might be a theological question. But if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, uh, why would you ever need to ask for forgiveness from God? Because doesn't the Bible say that you're forgiven everything, right? Why do you, why didn't you ask for it, right? Because you already did ask for it. God forgave you. Don't you know the book of Romans? You are justified, declared righteous. Why do you need to ask? Well, I think looking at this prayer might be helpful. It starts with the phrase, our father in heaven. So question, if, if you're in a family situation where your father promises, I will never disown you, you're mine, you're, you're part of this family. I love you. I care for you. And then you say, awesome, great. And then you fail him. You fail your father often. You don't do what he tells you to do. And you do things that he tells you not to do. And then you think, well, why do I need to ask for forgiveness? 
I'm already in with God, I'm, I'm, or my father in this situation. I'm already a child. He told me he wouldn't make me not a child, so why would I even have to ask for forgiveness? See, that's the wrong perspective. If a kid ever said that about their parents, they were abusing their parents' love for them, right? They're, they're taking advantage of their parents. Same thing's true with you. If you're a disciple and you've been forgiven, that doesn't mean that now it's time to stop worrying about your sin. In fact, it's really the opposite. Forgive us our debts. This is for disciples and Christians. You can't even call God your father unless you're a Christian. So this is like a, you know, this is a Christian prayer. This is for disciples, really. Disciples only can pray this the correct way. So he says, forgive us our debts. So it's expected that Christians will sin, and it's expected that we'll fail God. And if you started thinking about how often we fail God, it is, it's, it's immense. It's really more than, more than we think about. Point number two, what do we need to ask God for next? We need to ask God to forgive you. Ask God to forgive you for regularly failing him. Ask God to forgive you for regularly failing him. You regularly fail God. Um, I regularly fail God. Uh, Use the word fail. I could have used the word sin against, right? But I want you to have the image in your mind of sinning against a father, all right? A debt incurred against a father, we owe God obedience. If you're a disciple, you really owe God obedience. And if you're not a disciple, guess what? You still owe God obedience because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and those who dwell therein. You belong to God too, even if you're not a Christian here this morning. But we owe something to God. We owe obedience. We owe loyalty. We owe love. We owe everything to God because this world is his and we we owe it to him. But what do we do? Do we give God the glory he deserves all the time or do, do we sometimes steal it for ourselves? Do we treat people the way God tells us to? Or sometimes do we take revenge or we get after people because it makes us feel good, right? Do we talk the way God always wants us to talk? James 3 says you'd, be, you'd have to be perfect if you could be someone who always controls their tongue and never says what's wrong. What's the point? We regularly fail against God. And if you're sensitive to your sin, you know that you fail, against, you fail God often. And you need to go to God and ask for forgiveness, not in a fearful way that you're afraid God's going to kick you out of his family. If you're a disciple, you're in, you're with him. But you go to your father and you apologize. And not just apologize, you, you don't just you know, say, oh, sorry. You go further. You say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm repenting of this sin. God, I recognize how this fails you. I, I, I knew the right thing to do and then I didn't do it. You know, you could sin not just by crossing some line God tells you not to cross. You could sin by not living up to the things that God calls you to do, right? Like, you know, you got to be obedient. You got to, you know, as your situation, you got to do your homework. You got to be a good brother or sister. And it's like, but if you don't live up to the thing that God tells you to do, that's sin too. It's not just crossing some line. It's both. That's why, think about it in, in terms of failing God. Did God tell you to do your chores? Did God tell you to do your stuff, right? If God is your father and he's given you tasks to do, if you don't do them, guess what? That's called failure, right? Now, it's not unforgivable failure. It's not like, hey, we can't move past this failure. But it is failure that we should go to God and talk to God about this. And the real question for you is, do you confess your sin to God at all? Like, a little bit? Or just when something really bad happens? Do you make it a habit ever of, like, thinking over your day? And thinking, how did I fail God today? How did I do what's right, but how did I fail? You're thinking of both, really. But importantly for this point, you're never going to ask God to forgive you for failing him, regularly failing him, unless you're waiting for the big ones. And then you just go to God about the big ones. But, But really, if you're his disciple, if you're his child, if you love him, let's go to God more often. The way this is put in John chapter 13, Jesus tells this analogy, he does this foot washing for the disciples and you know, you might remember that story. He washed his disciples' feet, and Peter's like, no, can't wash my feet. I'm good. I'm, you're my Lord. I won't let you do that. And he says, oh, man, like everybody who's in me, I, I have to wash you or you have no part in me. And he, he uses the washing, and now he turns into figurative language to talk about, you got to be cleansed from sin. If you're not cleansed from sin, you can't even be with Jesus. So Peter's like, Okay, wash my whole body then. Wash me all. If I got to have washing, wash me everywhere. Give me a bath, right? And, and Jesus says, no, no, no. You're clean, uh, but your feet need to be washed. It's a figurative way of saying you could be a Christian. You could have your sins forgiven, right? In a big overarching sense. You're right with God. But living as a disciple, we don't always do what God tells us to do. We sometimes break God's rules. We need to go back to God and tell him that. 
and get our feet washed again, right? Figuratively speaking. We need to go and, and, and have our, our sins forgiven again. Not, not in like a, a big overarching way, but, but we failed our father, right? What we did was wrong, and we need to own up to it whenever we do that. A lot of verses you could write down. Three that you could write down for this. Psalm 32, 1 to 5 is a good one to look at later. All about how it's good to be forgiven of your sins. And, and even there it says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there's no deceit, there's no hiding. David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. When he wouldn't confess his sin and when he was resistant, it was like it, it physically affected him. I could tell you plenty of stories of people who are physically affected because they've not confessed their sins. Right? It's just it, this guy, David, has caused him harm. But then he acknowledged his sin. He didn't cover up his iniquity. He confessed his sin, and God forgave the iniquity of his sin. Right? That's Psalm 32. Another passage to write down is Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. So I'm trying to give you one psalm, one from the prophets, and, and one from the New Testament. But the one from the prophets where you see this really clearly, Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So uh, a person who's sinning in their mind, give up those sinful thoughts. You're doing wicked things on the outside, great. Give up those wicked things. This is a repentance. And let him return, which is literally the word shuv. It's the word to repent. Turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I hope you know that even if you're not a Christian, especially if you're not a Christian, this is the first and biggest thing that you need to do. You need to turn to God. Because God will forgive you. It doesn't matter how bad of a thing that you've done. God will wipe it clean. He will forgive you completely. But then you got to live with him now. Now now you're going to say, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And that's the trade-off that a lot of you don't want to make, to be honest, right? Like, I don't want to become a Christian because if I become a Christian, then I got to live the way God wants me to live. I don't want to do that, right? Remember what David says. Blessed is the man whose sin is taken care of. The transgression is gone. It's wiped clean. The anxiety that controlled your life before doesn't control your life anymore because guess what? Now you're free. You're fine. You're forgiven, right? The anger that controls your life or the lust that controls your life, it can be gone if you're forgiven. But you got to be forgiven. Before you're forgiven, you got to go to God and ask. That's from the prophets. What about the New Testament? New Testament says this. This is 1 John chapter 1, verses 7, 8, 9. 1 John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. For, so if we're those people that are, are walking in the light, our path of life is, is with God, we're, we're disciples, we're on the path of life. Okay, great. Uh, then Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we don't have any sin, if we want to pretend like we're all good and we've got it all together and we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right? If we act like we're good, we're past all this, then we're, we're just lying. And, and that's a good sign, by the way, of a person who's not really saved is a person who thinks they never sin. That's a good sign that they don't get it. That's what John says right here. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, if we're someone who agrees with God about our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. That means he'll do it every time. And he's just. That means he can remain righteous and yet pardon a guilty sinner like you. And the only reason for that is because of what verse 7 says, because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So are you asking God for forgiveness when you fail him? Or is this one of those things that gets neglected? Because I think this is one of those things that can easily in my life be neglected unless I'm thinking regularly, how did I live today? How did I talk today? How did I treat people today? Right? Unless you do that, you know, at least for me, I, maybe it's just my personality, maybe, maybe it's a dude thing. It's like you just forget about it and like on to the next day, right? It's like, what did you do yesterday? I don't remember. Um, I just got something next, right? But you got to be, self, and some of you are more self-reflective, right? You're like, I, I don't even get you, John. Like, I think about every conversation I have over and over and over again. Okay, well then great. You're in a better position. It's easier for you to confess your sins then. Because if you remember them, perfect, right? But others of us, right? Um, maybe it's to, to my male audience, right? 
you got to be better at thinking, what did I do today? I need to think about what happened today. I need to think about how I treated people today. Instead of brushing it off and be like, ah, it's probably fine, doesn't matter. Go a step further and think, how did I fail God today? And then go to God. Confess, repent, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. Do you know how I have not even talked about that at all? It's because that's going to be the sermon next week. If you look at verse 14 and 15, it's all about forgiveness and, and forgiving others. So we'll save that for next time. But I want to make sure we talk about verse 13, which says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The idea there is that before we even sin, like it's one thing to ask for forgiveness for sins. That's a good thing to do. You know what's even better than sinning yesterday, not sinning today, right? I'd rather not confess sin tonight or tomorrow that I don't commit this afternoon, right? Just a logical progression here. So he says, lead us not into temptation, which has the reality that God can lead us where he wants to, and he says, don't lead us into the temptation. Right? And, or but, same word in the Greek, which is kind of confusing, but deliver us from evil, right? So if we're in the temptation, don't let us fall. And even the word evil, uh, if you're um, a CBI Greek student, this is the passage everyone turns to, because the word evil if you follow the footnotes, you see this? There's my Bible says footnote number four. I don't know what your Bible says next to the word evil. But if you trace it down to the bottom of your page, it'll say something like, um, or the evil one. Okay? The evil one. Well, who's the evil one? Well, in the book of Matthew, the evil one is Satan. Matthew 13, 19 says, the evil one comes and snatches the word out of their hearts. Right? It's, it's a reference to Satan. This one, we're not sure. If Jesus is just saying, hey, pray against protection and deliverance from general evil, sin, unrighteousness, whatever, that makes sense. Or from the evil one, because if you want to get into grammar, if this word is masculine, so there's, there's three uh, kind of ways that they do it in Greek, masculine, feminine, and neuter. Right? It's a weird word. You learned that word today. Neuter. You know what I'm talking about? Like a dog that, like neuter, right? Like neither, right? Uh, <laughs> that's how I remember, sorry. Um, so it's not a feminine word. It's a masculine word, but it also is a neuter word. And the tense here, the way that it's written, the problem is masculine words and neuter words, when they're in the genitive tense, if you want to know that, there you go, the genitive case, well then they look the, exactly the same. So here's the problem. We don't know if it's a masculine word or a neuter word because they're spelled exactly the same. So it could be either one. It could be deliver us from evil and sin or deliver us from the evil one. What do I think? I think it's the evil one because of the usage in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew where we see the evil one mentioned with this phrase. The evil one comes and snatches the words out of our hearts, right? The, the, the hard soil, that's the, from the parable of the soils. Uh, okay, what am I saying? I'm saying, what should we be praying for? We should be praying and asking God for protection from Satan's temptations, right? Temptation and Satan, put in the same verse. What is it all about? Point number three, ask God to protect you from Satan's temptations. That's the idea. We need protection. You need protection. Do you ever ask God for protection against temptation? That is a hard question, hard question to answer honestly. I think a lot of us might pray while we're in temptation. We don't always pray before temptation. We don't pray in the morning, God, I know that I have a particular temptation to this. God, please lead me out of that kind of temptation. Oh, and if I'm in it, please deliver me. Don't let me fall. Don't let me fall for Satan's schemes. Don't let me fall for it. Help me. Some of us, maybe you have what people call besetting sins. The idea is it's a, it's a sin that keeps coming up in your life. And you know it's a problem. And if I said, what's that sin for you? What's those two sins for you? You could probably list a couple. If you're a Christian, you know, like, oh, that's a problem for me. That's a problem for me. Great. Um, think of those and realize that a lot of us continue in sin because we only think about that sin after it's taken place. We don't guard against it. We don't pray against it beforehand. Maybe we pray something general when we confess sin, like, don't let me do it next time, right? But not before it takes place. Because if you're in the act of praying that you wouldn't gossip, if you're in the act of praying that you wouldn't lust, then it's kind of a weird thing to go right from that to like, ah, never mind, I'm going to do that thing, right? It's, it's harder to do that. 
And as you mature and as you get better at this and you grow in your faith, you're going to be able to overcome these sins through what God says in his power. Temptation. Uh, temptation, same word as the word testing. So sometimes it's like, is this saying God don't, let, don't test us or don't tempt us? But then you know James 1 says God doesn't tempt anyone with evil. So what's the point here? A lot of people say, oh, it must not be temptation. I think it is about temptation. And asking God to not lead you into temptation is consistent biblically, right? Because I know God doesn't tempt people with evil. The idea is he doesn't take an evil thing and dangle it in front of you and says, ha, ah, you should sin, you should sin. Right? That's not how God operates, right? Don't blame God for any of your temptations. Uh, in, fa- in fact, James 1 says, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, right? So the idea there is there's something external and there's something internal. What's internal? It's your desire, right? Uh, why do you want to gossip, right? Is it because you want to hurt people and, and break up friendships? No, it's because, you know, you really want to say that thing or you want to share that thing or you, there's something that you get out of the transaction. So you got some internal desire and now you got some external thing, some temptation that lures you in and that's why people sin because there's an internal desire and an external luring in, which can be different. It can be people can tempt you, Satan can tempt you. He just says here, God doesn't tempt you. He's not trying to lure you into sin. But we are so often lured into sin and, and the one who is in charge of that is Satan, which is why Jesus says, pray for protection. Another reason I think he's talking about Satan is because Jesus prays the same thing in John 17, 15. Listen to this. Jesus prays to the Father about the disciples. He says, I do not ask you, Father, to take them, the disciples, out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. I don't want them to be tempted by Satan. I don't want them to be used by Satan to do what Satan wants. I don't want that. So he prays against that. Do you pray against that for yourself, for your church, or for your small group? I don't want this group to be infiltrated by Satan. Now, you sound really mystical to say that, right? It's like, I don't know, that sounds weird. You know, my Hispanic grandma is praying about demons, right? Like, I I don't know. Like, I'm I'm sorry, that's too... I don't have a Hispanic grandma who prays against demons. Yeah, but, uh, you know, you could imagine, whatever. It could be any race. It doesn't matter. Uh, it could be your white grandma, Asian grandma. There you go. Very ecumenical, very, uh, very diverse there. Uh, but do you know what I'm talking about? Like, it's weird to talk about Satan because you're afraid of some weird obsession that people have with Satan. And they think there's a demon in everything. And there's, right? Okay. But we want to think biblically, right? What does the Bible say about this? The Bible does say, right, that Satan is real. And the other thing is, some people, I'd say in the... Uh, the classic American mega church vibe, worship night vibe. We like to say, Satan has no power. Satan has no power. And I say, you're stupid, right? Because the Bible says that Satan's like way smarter than you, like way smarter than you. Uh, here's just a verse for you. Second Corinthians eleven three. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul says to these Corinthians, Okay, so I think that's possible for you, don't you think? Right? So work backwards also. If your thoughts are drawn away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, you know who's at work behind all that? Even if he's not the direct agent in making that happen? Satan, right? So yes, there is some kind of correlation there. First Peter 5 says, be watchful, be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you believe that or do you not believe that? Because if you believe that, you know that every morning Satan wants you to sin and your call is to be watchful, to be careful about that. Be be careful about him, about his temptations. There's a passage, interesting passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul makes a phrase, we're not, like we don't fall for Satan's schemes. I'm not going to be outwitted by Satan. And that's kind of weird because like, well, what do you mean? Like, what was the scheme? The scheme in that church was there was a guy who sinned and did something really, really bad. First Corinthians 5 describes it. They, they have to kick this guy out of the church, which is a good thing. is what God commanded. But then when he was repentant and he came back, it was like there wasn't this acceptance that needed to take place there. And they weren't, he wasn't being forgiven. And the people in the church, they weren't all welcoming of this person back. And then Paul says, hey, we don't want to fall for Satan's schemes. It's like, whoa, what's Satan's schemes? To use this thing that happened to divide the church. 
right? So his schemes are pretty, pretty diverse and pretty uh, harder for you to understand and harder for me to understand than we'd easily point out. Uh, but anything that leads us away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Uh, one last passage. You're going to look at this in small groups. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9 through 13. This passage goes back to the wilderness, and Paul says, you know how those people in the wilderness sinned? That happened as an example for you, right? They complained. They got the manna from heaven, but they still complained. That happened as an example for you so that you'd be careful, that you wouldn't put Christ to the test. He says in that passage, this is verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, right? You think you're good. You think you're too mature to fall into sin. Well, then you don't understand how Satan works. He's more mature than you. He's smarter than you. He's smarter than me, right? He can take any of us down. He says, so don't think that you stand, right? Be humble. And then he says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man, right? Whatever your problem is or your temptation is, even if you think it's weird or unique, it's not uncommon. Other people have that too. Other people feel what you feel, maybe not in your situation, but in their situation, they do. And it could be, you know, not even in this room. You could have other people all around the world or in different times, but no temptation is just yours. But God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Right? There's your options. When you're in temptation, you can say yes to temptation and yield to it and, and do what you know is wrong, or you can find the way of escape, which is not always away from it, the way of escape means that you would endure it. It's not even like a escape like I can imagine in a submarine or whatever, like there's some escape pod. That's not how it works with temptation. The escape is like having a life preserver in a hard situation that you hang on to and be able to endure it, not run away from it, but, but overcome it. That's the idea. The point here is, do we ask God to protect us from Satan's temptation or are we entitled? And we think, no, nope, I don't need to ask for it. He'll just do it. Or... Are we self-sufficient? We think we don't need it or beyond it, or do we just not think about this? I think that's probably our biggest issue here in True North is we just don't think to pray for these things. But let us learn from what Jesus said, right? These are three simple requests, but they can teach us so much about how to pray and how to live. We'll talk about this more on Wednesday night as we break it down in small groups, but let's pray right now that God would help us with all this. God, we're blown away by how much your scripture says, even all the verses we just looked at today and, and referenced and wrote down uh, we know that your word is powerful. We know that uh, it directs us to pray. And I just uh, confess that we don't probably pray like we need to pray. We often fail, and we even fail in our praying. So I just pray that this sermon right now would encourage all of us to pray exactly how you want us to, to more than that, to be not led into temptation, to not give over to and yield to the temptations that we know are out there in the world, and even in our hearts, and also that we would be forgiven and we go to you regularly. So please help us with this. We know we want to be your disciples. I know that's what I want. I know many people in this room want that. We want to do what you want us to do. So please help us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.